Uh, well, we figured we'd do the long one again for the kids. Kids. Um, that's for me. Uh, I like making those. Those are what we do in big church, kids. Um, stick figures, dancing, and playing around. That's what you're missing. But grow up quick. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. It occurred to me that at the next time I celebrate a decade, I'm going to have a teenager. And as uh, Nathan helped me name it, that's kind of a little bit of an existential crisis I'm having today. Um, <laughs> my 30th birthday. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to have the kids in here. Um, I'm glad you guys are with us to worship today. Uh, I hope you are able to jump in with us today as we talk about hospitality. Uh, and so let's pray together, and then we will begin. Father, um, I do confess to you that I'm anxious, not so much uh, for what I just said, but Father, my heart is uh, consumed by things that I just cannot control. Uh, and Father, I pray that today you would help me, even in this next hour, as I'm uh, supposed to bring your word to your people, and Father, that you would help my heart rest uh, in the covenant that you have given us. Uh, Father, the covenant that you gave us free of attachment on our own, Father, that you offered of your own um, initiative and prerogative, and Father, a covenant that um, your Son has kept perfectly for us. And so, Father, let me trust in this moment that your word is sufficient. And Father, as we begin to walk through really all of Scripture today and see what your word has to say about hospitality, I pray that we as a church would grow in love for each other that we would grow in love for the lost, and Father, that we would better reflect the covenantal care that you have given your people as we go out to the world. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Let's talk today about covenant hospitality. Think about situations that you've come across, maybe. A young woman shares about her struggles with loneliness at a coffee shop with another woman from the church, and she's met with a deafening silence. Or a husband shares a struggle in a house gathering or a Sunday school class, and he shares a struggle with anxiety, and he hears from the group, I'm sorry, but thank you for sharing that with us. Can I pray for you? Or a woman shares for the first time with the women in her group about her past sexual abuse, and they say, I don't know how to help you. Or a couple shares about their chronic marital struggles, and the group responds with, well, you guys need to see a marriage counselor. What messages do people hear with responses like these? What tends to happen when someone courageously opens their heart about a struggle to the church and they get a response like this? You see, these responses intend no harm, certainly. There's no harm intended in the way that we often respond to these issues and these struggles. But they do, I think, fall short often of God's call to bear each other's burdens, like we see in Galatians chapter 6. Specifically by lacking in encouragement that's centered on the finished and ongoing work of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what we rest in. 
That's what we should speak. See, whether you, you realize it or not, you here today, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, whenever you are together, are part of developing a culture of care in this church, your church. And Matt and I are the elders of this place, but this is not our church. This is your church. This is our church. And you are a part of de developing the care, the culture of care in this place. I think, take a moment and, and just, just think. You can close your eyes if you want to, if you want to get kind of weird. Um, but just think and list. List the various ways that those around you might describe the struggles in their lives. What kind of words would they use in describing the struggle that they are experiencing in their lives? And think, too, what you experience in everyday life. What kind of words come to mind that, that, that kind of hit you in the stomach when you wake up in the morning and you think about what's coming? When someone mistreats you at work or at home? You might hear terms like confusion, fear, anxiety, hopelessness, numbness, shame, guilt, anger, bitterness, injustice, betrayal, unforgiveness, loneliness, discontentment, or just feeling overwhelmed. Those are certainly words that are familiar in my self-talk. And so when I share these things with the body or with another believer, I don't need them to say, I'm sorry. Can I pray? I need them to speak the gospel to me. I need them to, I need you to share the hope that you have. The hope that I have. The fact that it's okay that I'm needy. And in that very moment, you're needed. The idea of this family, the idea of sitting on the couch together, the family room, where we just come together and do life, needs to be wrapped up in the gospel. And that's what we talked about the first week. Largely, we're needy and needed. We are to be a mercy-compelled community. And it's not just that we are needy and needed for each other, but when things are not right, we go to one another. We pursue each other. Last week as ministers of reconciliation or ambassadors of reconciliation. We bring those that are far off back in. And we pursue things and people and make situations and relationships right. And so when we think about that, we say, okay, I'm needy and needed, and I am about this ministry, but where and how does it happen? Where and how does it happen? I think the answer for us today is in hospitality. So when you hear these terms, when you have these people share their struggles, those things are the things that we're about fixing in the gospel, but where and how do they get fixed beyond the gospel what's the context what's the mode of operation god has called us to to be ambassadors what's the place that it should happen where we do war against unbelief and sin where should the people of god 
meet with the other people of God to be about the work of God? I think the answer for us is in covenant hospitality. See, hospitality is something that is sorely missing from our culture. I only have to be moderately aware of what God is doing in the world on weeks that I'm preaching uh, for him to bring examples or illustrations to me. Uh, So it's helpful when I know what I'm preaching on ahead of time. Last Sunday, we go to lunch, and Five Guys has um, more than five guys there. And it's packed, all right? And there is no place for all of our people to sit. So me and my girl sit down at one table, and we got there a little bit earlier than other people, and save the bigger area for, um, for, well, the rest of you. So you guys sit over there. In between us is this sea of estrogen, all right? There are nine teenage girls sitting in between us, okay? No offense. Um, I don't think you're technically teenagers yet. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, you are. Ugh, it's freaking me out, man. All right. <laughs> There's this sea of, of nine girls, all right? And I'm, I'm sitting there with my two, and I'm going, please don't turn out like her. Please don't turn out like her. Her, 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 her. Eh. No, her, right? Freaking out, man, all right? It's, yeah. Dad was freaking out, all right? So, sitting there with them, enjoying our uh, our, our delicious lunch, and um, <laughs> laughing at these girls who have gotten food from everywhere but five guys, and they're all right there, all right, all down the strip. And I'm sitting there watching them, and they're talking, and they're taking weird pictures, and I'm doing my best Aaron Rodgers impersonation and, and photobombing a few of them. Um, they're doing that the whole time, all right? They're taking pictures, posting them, and then sharing them physically, all right? That's all they're doing. Then, at one point, it gets really quiet. My girls are like stuffing their face, and it's really quiet. I'm like, what's going on? I look up, nine heads down like this. Wait, not nine, eight. One girl sitting at the end of the table, just kind of like, well, all the other ones are on their phone. That's not relationship. That didn't happen when I was a kid. We had T9 freak texting. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, it's, it's like beginner programming, all right? Uh, that's what we did. If we took pictures, it cost like $5 to send it. It was crazy. We didn't have that. We talked to each other. There's no hospitality at that table. And so finally, the ninth one picks up their phone and she dives in too. Our culture doesn't understand this. But I think our culture also doesn't understand hospitality. The same thing happened in one of our house gatherings just a little while ago. I'm not going to call you out. I think you guys know who you are, and it was a little funny. You laughed it off. But this is, this is an evidence. This is the reality. We are on our phones. It is our community. It's a danger for me at home with my family. It's a danger when I'm with Matt. I've been begun trying to practice the, well, he talks for a while, so sometimes I have to like open tabs of things that I'm interested in looking up as he's talking in my browser. But usually I'm adopting this practice of trying to push my laptop screen down so that I can pay attention to what he's talking about. All around us is, is distraction. All around us is, is things pulling us away from the business that we should be about. And in many cases, the business that we're actually at a different place specifically for to be engaged in. They went out together to have fun and talk. And they completely missed the opportunity. 
You guys come to house gatherings. You guys come here specifically for a very particular purpose. And you incredibly run the risk of, of such a high, incredibly risk of, of missing the point. We can miss the point when we are here for one of many reasons. Maybe not, it's not your phone. Maybe it's just because you're here to get what you can get. And you miss the fact that you're needed. Or maybe it's because you don't think you're needy and you just come here to give and you don't receive. It's so easy to miss the point of what we should be about. I think hospitality or neglect of hospitality is the issue or the solution. So, if this is our problem for today, if this is what is standing in the way of right expression of family for renovation, then it's something I think we need to tackle. As we move through this vision series, next week probably being the last week, but maybe Matt taking one at the end, we need to wrap our heads around this. I think this is the climax of this series. The idea of hospitality, I think, is the missing key to most of what is going on in the church. In fact, there's a well-known church planting leader. He doesn't actually plant himself, but has led many different groups in church planting. He gets a group of church planters together, and they ask him the question, what is the most important aspect of church planting? And he says, hospitality. Hospitality is the cornerstone to which ministry happens. And so if we feel like ministry is not happening here, or we're not plugged in the way we should be, it is likely hospitality that is the issue. Now, I keep using the word, and what I want you to do before we continue is define hospitality. How would you define it? Go ahead, write it down right now. Write down hospitality, because Scripture doesn't always give us a great definition as it talks about it. It just simply kind of throws the word out there, right? In Romans 12 that we saw two weeks ago, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, right? So it has an assuming of some sort and what the definition means. First Peter 4, 9 likewise says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So it says do it and how, but not what it is. So go ahead, write down right now what you think the definition is. I think it would be helpful for us to to have some kind of working piece that you have at the beginning and then see what gap was there at the end. In most cases with sermons and teaching of some sort, you hear the issue and most people will say, oh, I'm good, I got, I got that. Love each other, I, I love people. I'm good. Hospitality, no one does hospitality better than me, right? Sorry, that was a little politically correct. Um, I'm doing just fine at this, right? Check. But what's interesting is in most cases, they can't even define what they're talking about. I love each other. What does love mean? I'm friendly. I give lots of hugs. No offense, Bruce. Keep, your, keep doing it. That doesn't mean love by itself, right? There's more to it. When we talk about hospitality, what does it mean? Nice? Be nice? Be a, like pro-level at Pinterest? Is that, is that hospitality? Don't fall into this trap. Hospitality doesn't just mean nice. We have to define what we're talking about. We have to assume that we are not doing well. Take the rebuke of Scripture. Repent. And lovingly begin practicing what God requires of us. So, if we're going to talk about hospitality, you may have already kind of 
figured out that this is a little topical-ish in nature, right? At least as far as renovation goes. Yes, all right, I'm a little excited about it. It'll be fun, okay? Uh, the question you should ask anytime you sit down in these red chairs, or any other red chair for that matter, is what does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with God? What does hospitality have to do with God? Sure, the scripture says to do it, but why? I, li I like this definition of purpose from John Piper. He says, the mark of a God-besotted Christian is that you always answer the question of why you do something by referring to God as we know him in Jesus Christ. Why do you go to work? Why do you play with your kids? Why do you go to school? Why do you go to church? Why do you wear the clothes that you wear? Why do you listen to the music that you listen to? And if you are a God-besotted Christian, if you are wholly consumed with Jesus, then you will always answer the question of why you do something by referring to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is how you know God. And so everything that we do if we are a God-besotted Christian, should flow from how we know Jesus. Why? Well, because the only things that we do on this planet that matter are things that are done in His name. And so if I can't answer the things that I'm doing apart from why they are related to, what does it have to do with God, then the things that I am doing will not last The only ethics, the only morality, the only things that we do that have eternal value are ethics and morality and things that are shaped by God's will, performed by God's power and aimed at God's glory through Jesus Christ. If you miss this, you will miss the entire rest of the sermon. The only things that have eternal value are ethics and morality that are, one, shaped by God's will, two, performed by God's power, and three, aimed at God's glory through Jesus Christ. On the scales of eternity, morality without Jesus Christ is lighter than air. It has no effect. And so as pleasant as the habit of hospitality may be in and of itself, the niceness of it, especially to our man-centered mentality and culture, the question, the question is, what does it have to do with God? What gives Christian hospitality its eternal value? And what sets it off from mere popular morality or niceness? The answer to this question will be the answer to the question, why do it? What's our motivation? What does it have to do is the answer to why we do what we do. So, we have two tracks today, all right, that we want to follow across the scriptures. All right, we're doing a biblical theology of hospitality today, okay? That's the topical preaching. Biblical hospitality of, or biblical theology of hospitality. We're going to follow two tracks, all right? And shocker, uh, spoiler alert, they all converge together at the cross. That, that's how you do this. That's, that's biblical theology. And then, specifically, what does that mean for us? So, if you want an exegetical sermon, we can do that. First Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. Show, display, hospitality, hospitality, one another, you guys, exegetical sermon, right? Good. 
biblical theology time, let's kill this. All right, we're going to go from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture by looking at what hospitality looks like. What does the whole Bible have to say about a specific topic? All right, so let's see. First, hospitality is covenantal. A relationship with the sojourner. Hospitality is covenantal. A relationship with the sojourner. If you're keeping score at home, this is answering the question of what to do. What to do. Our first text for today is in Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. You can flip there if you want. I would suggest you do that and underline it. It says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's where we're starting, all right? And I know it doesn't make a ton of sense yet, but we'll get there. Okay, keep this in mind. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Why? For for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This idea of covenant is all centered around relationship. Covenants are about relationships. The specific acts done due to a covenant relationship being formed, right? Across the Old Testament, we see a close connection between hospitality and a recognition of Yahweh's lordship and to covenant loyalty. Covenants are all over the Old Testament, right? You have the, the covenant with creation. You have the Adamic covenant with Adam. You have the Noahic covenant with Noah. It continues on through. There, there are covenants being made. And with all of these covenants are specific acts that are to be done by, in most cases, both parties. And to break covenant would be to not fulfill your responsibilities. And all of this is in a context of relationship. And specifically with, with Yahweh in mind, with God in mind, you have this very close connection between hospitality and a recognition of Yahweh's lordship and to covenant loyalty. There's this connection between the two. And we see a repeated pattern of God's presence and provision in the context of hospitality. The most notable one is this. If you think about the rushed frenzy to be hospitable to the Lord himself that we see with Abraham and Sarah when they receive him. Right? <coughs> they receive the stranger, and at first, we know, the readers know, this is God. He doesn't know that at the time, and it takes him a little while, and he figures out that his visitor is divine. And in this context, what happens, right? They're rushing to get food out and get ready and bake bread and make everything happen so that they can receive these guests as they should. And when they settle down and they begin finally talking, what happens? They find out they're going to have a son, Sarah, the barren one. In fact, they laugh at the guests. They're going to have a son. You see this promise happen inside this presence. You see this provision happen inside this hospitality. Hospitality doesn't just come with provision. It also comes with protection. 
Hospitality almost always includes protection. There are two events that went horribly wrong in this case. One in Genesis 19, as you're familiar with Sodom and with Lot and his angelic visitors. And another one that's lesser known, but much, much, much worse in Judges 19 and 20. So this protection went poorly in those particular cases. But look at the women of Scripture, man. They killed this. The protection piece, right? Women protecting. This is awesome. Look, look at these. Rahab and Joshua 2. Rahab was a prostitute and not an Israelite. And she provided hospitality to the spies to identify herself with the covenant God. You see, Abigail, in an example of submissive resistance against her sinful husband, she provided hospitality for David and his men in 1 Samuel 25. You have the widow of Zarephath, who provided hospitality for Elijah when facing starvation herself. And God, through Elijah, provided her household with food until the drought passed. You guys are all familiar with that story. You've been in Sunday school. She didn't have food. She just had a little bit of flour, oil, and water. And she made it happen. And God blessed her. Elisha received the hospitality of the Shunammite woman who provided him with a furnished guest room to use whenever he passed by. This, this lady had some money. But still, she built a room on top of her house. She made it an addition to her home. So that any time he came by, he would always have a place to stay. That's incredible. That is hospitality. When you're purchasing your home, do you have hospitality in mind? We have an addition. We didn't have to build it. We have an addition with a separate bathroom for hospitality. John Piper would call that my hospitality room for other reasons that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but we have that. We don't have as many traveling people as I would like, but we have it. In most of the Old Testament stories, guests brought their hosts into close contact with God. But it's also often revolted in other forms of blessing as well. Long for child, as we saw before, marriage, protection, or just provision. Acts of hospitality or inhospitality reveal the underlying good or evil of a person or a community. In the case of Sodom, a failure to practice hospitality was what despised the angels needed to know to see what indeed Sodom was like. But in other cases, we see that hospitality revealed the good of a city or of an area. You have to think about why. Why, why is this important? If you're talking about the stranger, Leviticus 19.33, a stranger who sojourns with you in your land. What's important about this? Well, the experience of being an alien or sojourner is someone who's vulnerable, someone who's vulnerable to others, and specifically dependent. And in our context, you're vulnerable to others and you're dependent on God as host. This experience of being an alien or sojourner for the Israelites in Egypt was fundamental to their identity. In Leviticus 25, 23, it says, For you are strangers and sojourners with me. God says this, you are strangers and sojourners with me. <coughs> you see that Israel's sojourner status 
was a reminder of their dependence on God and a basis for gratitude and obedience. What does that sound like? An identity. I'll read it again. Israel's sojourner status, the fact that they were sojourners, was a reminder of their dependence on God and a basis for gratitude and obedience. That is an identity. When we talk about the identities of renovation, that's what we're talking about. And so, what do they do? Their rhythms. The status also supplied the experiential foundation from which the Israelites could recognize and respond to the needs of aliens and powerless people in their midst. The fact that they had been there, the fact that they knew what it was like to be without, to be without hope, to be without protection, to be without provision, enabled them to see others who are of the same plight. And so because of that, this experiential foundation allowed them then to respond to people who had these needs. That's your rhythms. So, once you have recognized your identity, Israelite, stranger, sojourner, then you can provide rhythm, hospitality to those in need. But once we've identified, then do we always provide? Is there ever a case where we don't provide? This is who I am. This is what I do always we have to identify a little bit more clear because the covenantal nature of their faith supersedes and is the basis for any hospitality that occurs. Understand that. Above the fact that they are to do comes again this motivation, and that's the covenant. So there's two paths, all right? Two paths of Israel's response to aliens, all right? Because of the covenantal structure. Number one, on this hand, Just as God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, so Israel was to act with a justice that could not be corrupted by bribery and with a love that welcomed and provided. Look up Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 22. Alien, welcome and provide. Fair? One hand. Other hand. However, Foreign practices and people that might subvert commitment to God. I'm going to say this again just to be clear. Foreign practices and people that might subvert commitment to God. That's their standard. Commitment to God. Were rigorously excluded. Those strangers who by maintaining ties to their foreign religion and community might threaten Israel's social organization and and loyalty to Yahweh. These people were sometimes tolerated, all right? Not, not in every case are they to be rejected. In some cases they are tolerated, but more often they were seen as enemies and rejected. I have a long list of this. This is a reality of covenant. This isn't angry God. This isn't God of the Old Testament. We're going to see that later. This is covenantal purity. Covenantal purity in mind. 
Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Exodus 34, 10 through 16. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. Joshua 23, Joshua 24. Those who would subvert loyalty to God and disrupt covenant unity were summarily rejected and in some cases destroyed. In Exodus it says, And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, whom, I'm sorry, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. That's some strong language. I understand it's a family Sunday and enjoy explaining that today. That's serious. You can't overstate that. Are we loving? Yes. Do we accept every culture? Yeah. Do we invite and adopt every culture? No. No. And get this straight, American Baptists. It's not our culture. It's the culture of God's Word. In many cases, we are complicit of adopting too much of our culture into the culture. We need to be careful that we're not bringing our own gods, making covenants of our own gods, bringing in our own altars. It's so easy to just bring it in because it's who we are. And we get our identities mixed up. Our identity is Christian first, American eighth. I love this place. All right? We are incredibly blessed to be in this nation. But it's not who we are. I don't remember who it was. I want to say it's Russell Moore. This nation is an experiment. This covenant is eternal. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. This has huge, huge, huge implications for how we contextualize the gospel rightly, for how we respond to different cultures, whether it be international cultures, whether it be the homosexual culture. It has huge implications for how we discuss that. And so the Israelites had two options upon recognizing the alien and very clear instructions on what to do. So if you're following your, your, your thought process here, on the one hand, we've got hospitality at the top, right? And the covenantal aspect on this arm that we've been discussing is all about the relationship, right? When we talk about that, we're thinking all about the presence. We're thinking all about the provision that relationship, that covenant relationship. And to who? To the sojourner and to the stranger, 
right? But what do they do with that? Then you break off. On one side, you love and you welcome the alien, and on the other side, you exclude and reject them. All right, so that's the picture so far. Let's go to the other side. What to do, all right? When a stranger comes in, treat the stranger sojourner. What's the other side now? Motivation, the why question. So before it was what to do, now it's the why we do it. Number two, hospitality is commitment to the glory of God. Hospitality is commitment to the glory of God. This is the why we do it. Hopefully this will shed a lot of light on the exclusion aspect. I know that's the harder one to wrap our minds around, but it's important that we see it. So let's talk about the lordship, the glory of God being our motivation. Leviticus 19 that we read earlier and we've been using in this sojourner and stranger language begins in verse 1 and 2 like this. The Lord spoke to Moses. And the rest of the chapter is a bunch of commands, right? The typical Levitical ones that you're used to hearing. A bunch of commands. Number, so verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them this, right? This is the thesis statement to the paper God is writing for the Israelites. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the fundamental call that's ultimately going to lead to the text that we have just 33 verses later on hospitality. You shall be holy as I am holy. Your values shall mirror my values. Values, virtues that we've been using at home have been such an amazing tool with my children. As we try to recognize the values and the virtues of the character of God and instill those through memorization of Scripture, I use that word a little loosely on some of the translations my kids have to use, and then apply it in everyday life. Adeline gets in a fight with her sister. Adeline, what's your verse on kindness? Be kind to everyone. Were you being kind to your sister? No. Why? Now we can explore the heart. Why were you not kind? What, what does God's values look like? Kindness. Joy. What's your verse on joy? Always be joyful. What's your verse on, tru- verse on truth? I've chosen the way of truth. Then why are you lying? You're not valuing truth. What are you valuing? What's your heart worshiping? Easy ways to drop into conversation with my kids about their hearts is their values. We should value the things that are mirrors. Are, we should mirror the values of, of God. And what does God value? Is probably the ultimate question. His virtues are, are aspects of His character, but I, the ultimate motivation, my motivation for wanting to be kind, is not just simply that God says, "Be kind." Why do I need to be kind? What is the root value of God? The root value of God. Why did God come to Israel? Why did he show them such hospitality? Why did he rescue them from the refugee camps of Egypt? Why did he bring them home to a land flowing with milk and honey? Was it because Israel was so virtuous? Was it because of his own commitment, maybe? Instead, to glorify his name by keeping covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Two incredibly foundational texts. One, poetry. One, a statement. Ezekiel 20, 8-10. 
But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That's the state of affairs. And so then I said I would pour my wrath out upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. People won't put away what they're supposed to put away, won't act the way they're supposed to act. I will pour my wrath out on them. But, you know my opinions on but in Scripture. I don't know what that was. But I acted for the sake of my name. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. At the end of the day, God's actions were for the sake of his name. Psalm 106, verses 6 through 8. This is a reflection on the exact same thing we just talked about from the psalmist. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but instead they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. This concept is not new to renovation. We tackled this, I don't know, I have the artwork in my office, in January of not last year, but probably the year before. So it might be new to some of you. God does what he does for the sake of his name. God's hospitality to the Israelites. Why did he come and show them hospitality? To rescue them from Egypt. God's hospitality is motivated by his unwavering commitment to the glory of his own name. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned. And unless we can see this, we will never understand the meaning of grace. You see, at the the foot of this path, on this side of hospitality, is grace. On this side, it's love, care, provision. On this side, it's grace. Grace is the hospitality, catch this, grace is the hospitality of God to welcome sinners, not because of their goodness, but because of His glory. Grace is the hospitality of God to welcome sinners, not because of their goodness, but because of His glory. You see, if God chose not to magnify the glory of His own self-sufficiency, and instead to enrich Himself by looking for talented and virtuous housemates, there would be no grace in this world, and no hospitality, and no salvation. We owe our eternal life to grace. And grace is God's disposition to glorify His freedom and His power and His wealth by showing hospitality to sinners like you and like me. And so they converge. One track ending with welcoming and loving the alien, and the other being grace given to them for His glory. How's this come about? How do they converge together? In the person of Jesus, 
right? It begins with his incarnation. Look at this incarnation. When, when Jesus came to earth, God came as the guest or the stranger. When Jesus took flesh, he became a guest and stranger here. Luke 9, 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. John 1, 10 through 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him. He had possession of the world. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, in the flesh, was a sojourner and a stranger. But most mind-blowing is at the same time that he comes to this place as a sojourner and as a stranger with no home, he also comes as a host. What does Jesus say when he shows up? The kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. Jesus is the inaugural, inaugural son, the inaugural king of the new kingdom. And though he's a stranger among these people, what is he doing his entire ministry? Bringing people in to the new kingdom. That is glorious. It's such a beautiful picture for Jesus to be here as a guest and stranger to be rejected and at the same time to be the most gracious host, bringing people into the new kingdom. And how does he do this? Well, you see it in two different arms again. We kind of split off here again. On the one hand, if we're thinking covenant and provision, to those without, without specifically provision, right? He's their provider. He provides food for 20,000 people. He's a provider. That's what he does. He gives and every time he gives, he expects nothing in return. Nothing. So to those without, he gives provision. To those without, meaning outside, to those outside of this place, what does he give? He gives glory of grace. He sits with sinners and tax collectors and brings a new kingdom to them. We know from Ephesians, he pursued us. We were dead in our trespasses. And what did he do? He pursued us. He made us alive. Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. He pursued us. And so we see them, again, converge together in, believe it or not, Ephesians. We're familiar with it. But think about this, a year ago now. Ephesians chapter 2, look at how these incarnation, stranger, host, Providing for people, bringing them in. How do they come together? Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time, listen to this language and see if you recognize it, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2, 15, 16, a couple of verses later. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and listen to this language, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 2, 19, a few verses later. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers or aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members 
of the household of God. That is incredible. But why? Ephesians 1, 5-6, In love he predestined for us adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has received us in the Beloved. This is it. This is the same motivation, relationship that Israel had, we have. What does it have to do with God? Everything. What does hospitality have to do with God? Everything. It's everything to us because this is everything we are. We're united in Christ because of this. The ultimate act of hospitality was when Jesus Christ died for sinners to make everyone who believes a member of the household of God. This is the ultimate act of hospitality. We are no longer strangers or sojourners. We have come home. We have a place to go. We've come home to God. Everybody who trusts in Jesus finds a home in God. And why did he do it? Why send his only son to die so that sinners could have hospitality in heaven? To sit at the feast of all feasts. Ephesians 1, 5-6, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He did it for the praise of his glory and of his grace. It was the same reason that he rescued unworthy strangers in Egypt for his own glory, Ezekiel and Psalms. This was grace in the Old Testament, and it is grace in the New. It is the same God. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. The ultimate foundation of Christian hospitality is God's unwavering commitment to glorify the freedom and all sufficiency of his grace. What to do, why to do it, how it was done in Jesus. You see that? It's an incredible picture. So, let's dig in then into the practicals with our time remaining. What did New Testament hospitality ultimately accomplish? If, if we understand it to be completing the pattern of Jesus, taking the pattern of what Jesus did and fulfilling to the extreme what the Old Testament embodied, then why? Like, what did it do? What was its, its effects, right? So I think New Testament hospitality has multiple different ramifications. I think there's three things it really accomplishes in like three dimensions. One, respect and recognition. New Testament hospitality allowed for respect and recognition of people. You think about the destruction of the status boundaries that were floating around in that time, especially in the New Covenant community. On one hand, you have believers to unbelievers, right? So it was scandalous for Jesus to go and eat with the sinners and tax collectors, right? At least to the Pharisees. What was he doing? He was breaking down boundaries, right? Now, he went to them and invited them. What do you suppose was the requirement if they were to go with him? Right? So it's not just wholesale adoption, right? Everyone says, well, Jesus went and ate with the sinners. All right, did he leave them there? Is that what happened? No, there's more to it. We're going to discuss some of that in a minute. But understand that he went, right? We go. We break down those barriers. What happens then, up to the Spirit, right? We be faithful, and if they come, they come. If they don't, they remain. Right? But we go. That is an important part, right? 
But then in the New Covenant community, you had this other thing. So not only was it an issue going outside of the body, it was an issue inside the body. If you look at the first 15 chapters of Acts, you see this being a huge issue. The Jews, Gentiles, how do, how do they fit together? Who's responsible for what? What requirements of Judaism is there then on the Gentiles? And, and what do the Gentiles need to do for the Jews? And are the Jews better than the Gentiles because they were first? How does this all work together? And Jesus helped explain that even before Acts, right, obviously, and before the advent of the church, he showed what it was like to go and to care for the sojourners and strangers, who at this time particularly, the Gentiles still were. So there's this, this destruction of those boundaries. Second, the structure practically for meeting physical needs in general, right? So first of all, let's talk about people outside. The word for hospitality in this particular case is, I'm using Greek here, right? Uh, follow, philo. Philadelphia, that kind of love, right? That brotherly love, philozenia. Xenophobic is what you might be used to hearing. It's a fear of strangers, xeno. The root is the, the strangers, people who are aliens, sojourners, that language. So what is this? Philozenia. Brotherly love for the stranger. Brotherly love is an intimate, familial love. You're known for the stranger. That's a high calling, right? And that's this kind of structure of meeting physical needs. You care for them in that way. And then within, right? Hosting local assemblies of believers. This will be the third piece. The gospel is preached and propagated in these gatherings. Christian identity is forged and reinforced in these gatherings. Social bonds are established and sustained in these gatherings. Practically, easily done. Protection, provision, Glory and grace. All happens together in those pieces. So next we need to look at this idea of covenant purity. We talked about this really this whole cycle, right? Hospitality at the top, covenant on one side, glory of, the, or glory of God on the other side, lordship on this other side, right? And we've seen how that comes together, converges at Christ, specifically at the cross, but begins in his, resurrect, or his incarnation and how he then helps the local church, right? And this Ephesians 2 language as he reconciles men to each other and to God, right? So that's all out here. But remember over here, we've got this question. I've identified the stranger. How should I treat them? I need to keep in mind that it, it happens up here and it also happens down here with the Jesus piece. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. And my texts that we're going to use going forward are New Testament texts, all right? I already read the Old Testament one. We're going to talk about this, this covenant purity. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 John, verses 9 through 11. There's only one chapter. 2 John 9 through 11. What does it look like to practice covenant purity in the New Testament, specifically in the church? Catch this. I want to be sensitive here, and I've structured this in such a way that I think it is. But at the same time, I want it to have its force, right? This is a, a thing of serious gravity, as we saw earlier, right? All right, Second John 9 through 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. 
For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, who are we talking about? Two different people. Doesn't matter how you read the and, all right? Who goes on ahead and does not. It can be and or it can be or. Either way, it still works. One, if they are immoral, do not receive them. What does this mean? We're talking about believers, people who claim to be believers, coming to you and what you should do about them. If they do not abide, right, does not abide in the teaching of Christ, do not receive them. This would be people of consistent, unrepentant, immoral behavior of any sort. Of any sort. If they don't bring this teaching, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If they don't abide in the teaching of Christ, the teaching of Christ is the teaching that is Christ. The teaching that Christ did is the teaching of Christ. It doesn't matter which way you read that. If they do not abide in it, if they are in Perpetual, unrepentant, immoral sin, do not receive them. Number two, this one's much easier, an easier one to swallow at least. False teaching. It says to go on ahead, everyone who goes on ahead. This means to be doing in addition to, typically, right? This is what we see specifically of the Pharisees. They would be considered going on ahead, adding to the law, In the case of those who are living immorally, they're removing from the law. They're choosing not to obey the full counsel of God's word. In the case of those who go on ahead, they're a false teaching. They're adding more to what the gospel would require. Does that make sense? So both ends of the spectrum, you're not to receive them. Look at the way that this happened in the early church. Specifically, struggles over authority and struggles over doctrine found expression over extension or denial of welcome. It's supremely practical. You have a false teacher coming about the land. You go to a church, you show up at church, you speak. They take up an offering for you. They give you the money. They feed you. They give you a place to stay. And you go on to the next city. And they give you money to speak. They take up an offering. They feed you. You've got food. You're a college student. Right? Perpetual college student. You just go and you keep making money. And so what's the easiest way to stop that? Don't feed them. Don't let them stay at your house. Don't take up money. Don't let them speak. If the, the teaching that they are giving is an issue of authority or an issue of doctrine, don't let them do it. It's supremely practical. But listen, it's not just a denial of welcome, all right? At the end of the verse, it says that they're so dangerous. Not only do you not let them in, at the end of verse 10, do not give him a greeting. Do not give him a greeting. Polycarp, church father, some of you are familiar with him, right? Said this when he met a heretic. He greeted him, right? It says don't give him a greeting. He greeted him. This is what he said. I recognize Satan's firstborn. And then he left. That's a harsh greeting. That's not a greeting. That's the point. I recognize Satan's firstborn. Listen, greeting means to give a greeting. Literally means to rejoice. That was the Christian greeting. A standard greeting is to rejoice. So when you see someone, you're rejoicing. In other words, this is a happy occasion to see you. It produces joy. Your presence here in front of me is a source of joy. Welcome to the fellowship. It's an affirmation of solidarity. 
When you come to church, greet each other. Acknowledge each other. Don't ever just walk by someone. Greet each other. It's a cause for celebration that they are here. That you are here. You don't ever want to say, welcome to the fellowship. Someone who does not value, though, what you value. Especially while they still call themselves your brother. That's specifically who we're talking of. Someone who does not abide in the teaching of your Savior. You don't ever want to say, welcome to the fellowship. Your presence is a source of joy to me. To someone who's a false teacher and a deceiver and a liar and an emissary of Satan. You don't want to give them that. Don't ever say that to the false teacher. Some of you may say that that's narrow. Yes. It's a little harsh. Absolutely. That's the point. It might be unloving. Yes. Is it harsh? Is it narrow? Is it unloving? Absolutely. But nothing is as dangerous as deception because nothing is as precious as truth. Right? That's what we're dealing with. Speaking of dangerous wolves, Acts 20, he's speaking of thieves in the language of Jesus in John 10 who come to kill and destroy the flock. Any hospitality, any commendation, any acceptance of them would be dangerous exposure to antichrist influences. You can't overstate this. It would be absolutely impossible to overstate this danger. This is the same danger that we saw in the Old Testament. It's the same danger that we see here in the New Testament. If you ever put yourself in a position in which you give yourself over to lying teachers, you are in defiance of this text. It is that clear. Shut the door in their face, John says. John was a real shepherd. He was protecting his flock. The quickest way to contribute to their failure is to shut the door and give them no affirming greeting at all. Their mouths, Titus 1 says, must be stopped. And the church today is not willing to do this. I pray that our church would be willing to do this. How serious is this? You say, oh, I should do it for love of the truth, right? Nothing is as precious of the truth. Yes, I should do it for the love of God and honor of God. Yes, but John goes beyond that. Look at verse 11. Why should you, why should you not greet them? For the one, the one who lets him in the house and the one who gives him a greeting does what? Fellowship. He participates and his evil deeds. That participate, that fellowship is, is koinos. That's what we're used to hearing. That's the community that we want to have in our house gatherings. Fellowship, do life together, participation together, all of that. If you greet him, if you greet him, you participate in his evil deeds. You literally partake in the evil works of him. If you even show hospitality, beyond that, if you give him an affirming greeting. Yes, it's a tight and a very narrow responsibility. Don't do anything to acknowledge them as Christians. That's covenant purity in the New Testament. That's the standard that we're called to on that. So, you have the whole picture. The question is, what are you going to do with it? You know the criteria now. I don't know how hospitality... Now your understanding matches to what you wrote down at the top of your paper. I pray that it's a little bit more robust. I pray that you have some direction. Let's talk about how we extend hospitality just briefly. First Peter 4, 7 through 11. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and so reminded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, what? God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him alone glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It sounds exactly like Ezekiel. Exactly like Ezekiel. This is even similar to Romans 12 that we used two weeks ago. In Romans 12, you have this declaration of who they are, their identity, right? They are mercy-molded people. Right under that is a section that we skipped on the spiritual gifts that we as a church uh, would identify as the gifts that we have. And then we got into this section of how to live. And so in this same place, you have this gifts and then actions. This is a very familiar pattern in Scripture. And so earnest love, right? This love, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnest love seeks the good of others before one's own and finds practical expression in hospitality. In verse 9, that's how you love one another earnestly. You show hospitality. And then use every gift for one another. Verse 10, right? So we don't want to resent the time. We don't want to resent the expense. We don't want to resent anything about what may be involved in offering hospitality. The words translated ungrudgingly are more literally without grumbling or without murmuring. Think about the Israelites. What did they do when God was providing for them? They grumbled. They murmured, right? It's the same thing. It's the same thing because... For us, such grumbling for them, for us, is ultimately a complaint against God and his ordering of our circumstances. And its result is to drive out faith, thanksgiving, and joy. You, you, you don't want to drive out those things. You want to create them together. And grumbling displaces those. Understand that to do hospitality to one another without grumbling is a miracle of God. It's a denial of self. That's a miracle of God. But catch this, I said do hospitality. And hospitality is not something you do, it's something to be. Show hospitality to each other without grumbling. It's something that you are. To who? Well, I think that's an important consideration. Who do we show hospitality to? I'm going to argue that you would show hospitality to the people of the covenant community first. Right? Obviously, not exclusively. We already covered that. But I would say... The covenant community first. I have a few reasons, and I've got more that we're not going to talk about today. But, but catch this, all right? Though hospitality to all people is certainly pleasing to God, right, is clearly what was required, Peter's emphasis on hospitality to one another, that is, to other Christians within the household of faith, is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. You look at Galatians 6.10. So love for the brothers is how we are known. Look at John's epistles. That is how we are known to the world as Christ's followers, by our love for one another. Another example, or another reason, rather. Hospitality to the brothers fosters an environment for hospitality to strangers. The cases in the Old Testament where hospitality was a disaster, people were, were, their kids present. Things happened, bad things, really bad things. Caused wars, 
Hundreds of thousands of people died because of a hospitality incident in Judges. It was a mess. It happened because the community was not hospitable. And so before we can accept strangers well, it has to be a city, a culture of care. And so hospitality for the brothers fosters in an environment for hospitality to strangers. And finally, I would say, at least in this list, his provision for his people is to his needy and needed people. The reason that we are to care for each other first is because we are the instruments, as Paul Tripp said, of God's care for his people. This gifting language that happens in all of these hospitality cases are gifts to be given to the brothers first to care for them very practically. So I want us to consider, I want us to consider, as Hebrew says, how to stir up good works in each other, to encourage them to premeditatedly think about and practice these things. As it says earlier, let us be constant in hospitality, persistent, right? To pursue. The fact that he has to encourage us to be constant and to pursue is an incredibly important piece because the implication is that, well, we're not. Everybody's familiar with gravity, right? Everything about gravity and the physical force of it pulls everything to the center of the earth, right? In order to actually break free from earth-centered life, thousands and thousands of pounds of energy have to push the space shuttle, particularly away from the center, to break free of that force. There's a psychological force of gravity, I think, that we dismiss that constantly pulls our thoughts and our affections and our physical actions inward toward the center of our own selves. And I think the spiritual version of that are homes. The most natural thing in the world is to neglect hospitality. Because everything is drawing inwards. It's the path of least resistance. All we have to do is yield to the natural gravity of our self-centered life. And the result will be a life so full of self that there's no room for hospitality. We'll forget about it and we will neglect it. We must pursue it. John Piper explains his practice of hospitality in his sermon. He says, invite people. Be an inviter. Put people in your home. Go to people's homes. Stop being prideful. Get out of your home and go to people's houses. In the morning, you can tell his experience cooking by this story. In the morning, turn the crock pot on, whatever setting it is. Take your cans of soup, your clam chowder, your chicken noodle, your chicken pot pie, and your, uh, your onion and beef. Just put them all together, all of it. It's a casserole, right, when you combine multiple things. Don't do this, all right? Try, just look up on the Internet. It's really easy how to make a soup. All right, put together whatever you have. Go to save a lot. Buy paper plates, forks. No one does dishes on Sunday. If you do it right, you have a crock pot and a spoon. Invite people. Bring them into your home. Have them sit. Take everything on the table and push it into the corner, right? That's my hospitality room. Um, If you've been to my home, you know what I'm talking about. Push it in the corner. Make space for people. And invite them in. And have a place where you can be needy and needed. I do this every Sunday. I invite people into my home. I fall asleep at the head of the table. I storm myself awake, and I say, thank you for being here. Um, I'm going to go upstairs and take a nap. And he goes upstairs and takes a nap. 
He says, there's no point in me staying. I'm going to be useless to them. That's John Piper's version of hospitality. I think it's beautiful. And that's what we need to do. We need to invite people in and care for them. You don't have to and you should not go super Pinterest person all the time. Should you do your best for each other? Yes, I think there's a, a side to hospitality where we should honor people. But we cannot use anything to excuse hospitality. All right? Don't, you don't have to put out your finest china. You don't have to have a centerpiece on the table. But you do have to practice hospitality. Don't kill yourself, but also do your best. You can reconcile with those things. I know what it's like to be busy, guys. I get it. I, I totally get it. All right? I have, I have toddlers. I have kids, and the ones that you can't just drop off at, at, at sports and do what you want to do. You have to basically sort of care for them. I've been full-time school for the past year and three months, including the summer. I work here. I give my all to all these things, and I try to be the best husband I can be. And we practice hospitality. It's a requirement for elders. Invite people into your life. Be needed. And be needy. Go. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of where naps are easy. Go to people's houses and care for each other. Sundays, we always go get food unless there's a DNA leaders meeting. Come with us. Sit at the table. Show a table full of nine girls what it looks like to have conversations with each other. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your hospitality. Father, I thank you for uh, the patience of those in the chairs today. Father, I pray that we would recognize the need for hospitality in a very real sense. I pray that we would care for each other. I pray that we would seek each other's good. Father, we would recognize the need for provision. We would recognize the need for protection. Father, we recognize and are motivated, pushed by a love for your glory. And Father, as we see and represent your name to the world, that Father, we would represent you well. As we talked about last week as ambassadors, to recognize the power and the, the prestige that comes with the name behind which we represent. And Father, this week to recognize the name that we proclaim to the world to be that of your name and the work of your Son. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in this place. Help us love as you have loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.